Welcome to episode six of Talking Games with Reggie and Harold. We hope you've been staying safe and well since you last tuned in to the podcast. And we hope that you're raising your voices and investing your time and commitment to the issues of the day. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please donate at nygamecritics.com slash Reggie to help us mentor homeless students facing unprecedented hardship right now. Last week, we had the Juneteenth holiday, and we want to point you toward two great stories. The first is at NPR by the musician Terrence Blanchard. It's called Black Protest is Music. Learning the melody is not enough. I found this story to be really compelling. And the second is a landmark poem within a thoughtful New York Times package called Juneteenth Celebration. It's by Guggenheim winner Patricia Smith, a poet I've had the great pleasure of seeing read. Her work is called The Stuff of Astounding, a poem for Juneteenth. And the last line is perfect. Here a whole people celebrate their free and fragile lives. Then find your own place inside that song. Make the singing matter. Today, our first guest is Evan Narciss, a writer both Harold and I have had the pleasure of knowing for over a decade. Evan helped to write the upcoming Spider-Man Miles Morales game for the PS5 and also wrote the Rise of the Black Panther comic book series. As a journalist, Evan was also at the very first meeting of the New York Video Game Critics Circle 10 years ago. Here's our interview with Evan Narciss. Well, first, uh, Evan, great to see you. Great to be with you. Uh, I, I have these fond memories of you interviewing me. So this is a little ironic that now I get to ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to come up with my best Reggie-style dodges. Oh, uh, there you go. Um, so so we're, we're going to start with easy questions, right? So let's talk about the beginning, right? How did you start your career in journalism? You know, did you always write, you know, from the get-go? Take us back to the very beginning. Yeah, you know, I was a big reader. I was an avid reader as a kid. So, you know, I always wanted to write. And you know, thankfully, as early, my earliest memories of being encouraged to write go back to elementary school in fifth grade. So I had teachers that were saying I had talent and um, that, that I should try and uh, stick with it. I always read, you know, but it wasn't until really college where I, I thought this might be a career for me. Uh, I took a course called Minorities in the Media, taught by Professor David Dent at NYU, who is still there. And um, it was just an elective, right? It was just something for me to fill out credits. And he's like, hey, you have, really have talent. We should get you into the journalism program. And so that happened. And once that, once that happened, I, uh, you know, really started to think this is something that could, that, that could happen for me. You know, my mom, being a good Haitian immigrant, as Reggie, you know, she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. So I was doing poli-sci and I took my first constitutional law class and I was like, this is not for me. Um, uh, I know the words uh, that are in these opinions, but I, I cannot make them sing in my head the way somebody, I guess, who's more attuned to that stuff could. So, you know, I told her I want to be a lawyer and she's, she said, uh, but you're going to be broke your entire life. She wasn't entirely wrong, but I've been happier than uh, friends of mine who did the careers who that, 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 that she wanted me to do. So I'm grateful for that. But yeah, so, you know, my entree into journalism, my, my formal first job was as a fact checker at Teen People magazine. 
um, which again, we have a connection um, around Reggie. Yes, we do. Uh, yes, we do. Yeah. So I was a fact checker, which meant I was, you know, going other other people's articles and, and uh, checking the veracity of the things that they said, going back to sources and making sure their quotes were correct and accurate. Uh, but also, you know, I was this 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 guy who was a nerd and loved comic books and video games and wanted them to want to be part of the magazine. One of the things that was unique about Team People at launch was that it was very gender neutral. It wasn't uh, um, specifically aimed towards a, a, a female audience. So I was like, video games and comic books are youth culture. We should be covering them. I, and I want to be the person leading the charge on that. So Jen Kalanita, who is now a YA novelist extraordinaire, but was... One of the entertainment editors at the time said, hey, yeah, let's give you a shot. So from there, you know, I started meet, meeting people within the video games industry and um, um, writing uh, coverage of new releases. And 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 when Team People launched the website, uh, I was able to do that stuff there, too. So that's how I got my start. And from there, people I worked with um, wound up at other places. I had a friend, Sandy Fernandez, who became an editor at The Washington Post and uh, she enlisted me to write um, small capsule reviews of of games and comics there too, and other people I knew went other places, and I was able to get work. So slowly but surely, I kind of made my bones, and and um, I guess uh, uh, established a reputation for myself um, um, where I was able to get work. So so Evan, you know, you moved up the ladder. I think I perhaps first met you when you were doing stuff for Time Out. But then as a journalist for Time and, and Kotaku and elsewhere, you wrote, were able to write about your pop culture culture passions like comic books and video games. Yeah. And I, just so why, why were these your passions? You know, it's funny. I always had an active imagination as a kid, you know, but like I even feel like that's a cop out. One of my earliest memories is being completely blown away by the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. And when I saw it as a kid in the theater, I'd been reading comics before then. I learned to read on comics. And, you know, it feels weird to say this in as an adult, but I feel like inherently I got like the kind of transportative power of the, of the, the metaphor in the heart of superhero comics. Right. Like I always say that superhero comics um, um, are aspirational. You know, those characters show us, you know, the best of humanity, the worst of humanity, the breadth and depth of humanity in really kind of big metaphorical stories. So. That, that 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 was part of what drew me into it. And video games were the same way. You know, they were so immersive and, you know, it was a medium that like, uh, you know, people think of as a time sink. But really, it, it's inviting you to kind of um, interrogate the logic and the structures of worlds that are not unlike our own and then reflect back to think about how they do resemble our own, you know, so. Those are the things that pulled me in, you know. I I, I was kind of a, a shy, kind of socially maladroit kid, and um, it was easy to kind of escape into those worlds. But you know, like eventually, I think like a lot of us, we I, I found um, companionship around these shared interests, and and some of my best friendships over the years have been because of those shared interests. Yeah, you know, you've you've written some powerful stories across the, the range of outlets that, uh, that you wrote for. And in particular, you took on some heavy topics, you know, racism and Resident Evil, the way black characters are portrayed. You know, what stories do you see as your most important stories? I mean, you know, definitely The Natural, which is my essay about trying to recreate my haircut in video games. You know, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I'm, I'm, I'm working as a 
consultant with with actual game designers and studios. And, you know, I've had a few times where people walk up to me. It's like that article really changed the way I think about the work that we do. Um, so that's very flattering. And that's why that's why we, you know, critics and journalists do that kind of work. But also, you know, there are other articles where I talked about, you know, being a father and wanting my daughter to be able to see herself um, and her someone who looks like her yeah, in these experiences. You know, I used to say that, like, uh, nothing about Uncharted changes if, if, if Nathan Drake is a black guy, you know, and maybe it's not a fair example. But like, you know, the kind of character he is, what he does, um, how he moves through the world. Yeah, you know, depending on the granularity of the world building you want to do, maybe he's not going to get through customs. The <laughs> 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 same way. But, uh, but you know, you know a, a, a kind of swashbuckling archaeologist, globetrotting hero, like that's, you know, that, that, that's an archetype that, that um, doesn't have to strictly be embodied by people that look like that character. And that's no shade on, on, on Naughty Dog and people make Uncharted, you know, but that, that's just always something I believe. And the same thing, you know, with a lot of these video game icons, you know, they're, they're heroic archetypes that can be embodied by people from all walks of life, which is, you know, the great thing about, this is going to sound like a plug, but the great thing about characters like Miles Morales, you know, like, you know, he gets to be a different kind of Spider-Man. Um, and that's all I will say about that. Uh, uh, there are probably uh, snipers from Sony watching my house right now. Well, we're gonna, um, I, you know, just 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 by, just by dropping that tidbit, you know, you got a little something out of the way. Now you could say, "No, sorry, I'm not talking about that yeah, anymore." Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, that, I, we, I, we, I call that a Reggie, by the way. <laughs> we will. Ouch! Ouch! We will try to get a, a couple of questions in about that. However, uh, but I just wanted to know, you know. You've worked in a fair amount of media now, and is there anything you, looking back on journalism, that you didn't like about it? Um, the grind of it, as 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 kind of um, exemplified by like the early two thousands, uh, a blogging kind of wave where like it was about volume and not quality. Um, thankfully, I, I was able to experience. A change in in that model while at Kotaku and io9 where it wasn't about getting six posts up a day and it was more like okay getting one or two really good things up a day that was not great um and also you know i, I lived through a change of the perception of journalism you know i feel like a lot of people are more skeptical towards journalists now than than they ever have been in my lifetime and i i feel like a lot of the benefit of the doubt that people doing journalism and critique used to kind of count on is doesn't is not there anymore like the audience are skeptical and they uh, assume that there are other ulterior motives at play um and you know again i can only really speak to my experience and the experience of people i worked with that was that was almost never the case it was about finding a good story telling that story well um bringing some insight into mechanisms of the things that you're writing about or the humanity of the people that you're writing about um and that was always the goal for me you know and the people i worked with People make mistakes, so you know um, uh, there there's sometimes mea culpas and explanations that have to come as part of the job. But you know, like people take a mistake for an agenda, um, and and that's that's a problematic um, dynamic that I think has become the order of the day now. So you know, I don't like you know the the automatic assumption of mistrust or distrust um, um, that sometimes came with it. You kind of have to grow a thick skin um, to that. And, you know, like other 
fields, you know, journalism um, and crit- crit- criticism needs to diversify, you know, like the idea that you need to go to uh, a four-year college and get a degree from somewhere doesn't necessarily uh, count anymore, you know, like I, I did those things. I went to uh, a university and got trained in journalism, but the one thing I learned once I got in the real world is you do, the, you learn the job by doing the job, you know, like Nobody tells you really how to ask a follow-up question <laughs> in journalism school, you know? They may broach it as an idea. You may do some reporting and ask some questions, but, like, doing it for a grade and doing it for real are two different things. Um, and people who have the curiosity, the desire, um, should be able to to find entry into, into the field of journalism uh, without having to, you know, incur a whole lot of student debt. <laughs> in the process. You know, Evan, you were one of the early members of the New York Video Game Critics Circle. What do you remember about those experiences? I mean, I was just so glad that an organization like that existed where we could meet like um, and share stories and kind of uh, sharing the camaraderie of the job. You know, it's a very rarefied kind of <laughs> vocation, you know, like it's a very rarefied profession. You know, me and my friends used to joke that like, uh, what, there's maybe 200 jobs like this in the whole United States, you know, like that's just a, a guesstimate that I'm pulling out of thin air. But like, it's a unique thing. And there are special kind of um, complaints or concerns or, or, or highs and lows that come with it. And you know, the critic circle was a place where, where we could talk about that. You know, unfortunately, I had a kid right after the circle formed, so I wasn't able to go as many meetings as I wanted to. But like the awards were always a special uh, thing every year. I still continue to be stunned that, you know, people show up and watch and attend and, and you know, game, game developers show up and pick up those awards. And, you know, it felt like this small thing that started way back when. Um, has taken on a really unique life of its own, and that's great. Uh, thanks, man. I I uh, I also know that you know while you were busy with all these other things, you were you were teaching uh, a course at uh, at NYU in journalism. Yeah. And so, did you you know what our our, our primary goal now is pivoted to teaching underserved youth? But did you enjoy teaching and shaping young minds? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, like, uh, first of all, the NYU Game Center is one of the most amazing organizations in video games. I know it's tangential because it's like academia and not like an actual part of the industry um, from a business standpoint. But like the people there are great. Um, uh, Frank Lance and, and, and Naomi Clark and, and Charles Pratt and, and Robert Yang and everybody who's over there. Mitu Kandaka. I could go on. Uh, they're great people. Um and they're really interested in um, expanding the breadth of what conceptually it means to be a game designer and what, what, what kind of games can live and find audiences out in the world. And that was super important to me because that was, the, you know, the kind of work I was interested in, too, as a, as a critic and a journalist. You know, what are the small, quirky indies that have kind of rich thematic depth or, you know, what's a game designer who has a unique story or a player who has a unique story. I remember one time I wrote a piece at Kotaku about one of my neighbors because he he supported the Kickstarter campaign for a game that I wrote about. It was um, God of Blades, um, which was actually made here in Austin where I live now. But I recognized the label, the, the, the studio name from the, la- the mailing label. I was like, yo, Scott, you want to talk about where you supported this game and what you're... And it was just like, a, you know... It wasn't like a traffic monster, but I was like, okay, here's a real person 
who's like gets on the subway, you know, has a job like everybody else, but like, you know, doesn't necessarily fit the 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 stereotype of a gamer and, you know, still wants to participate in this medium, even though like parts he feels like parts of it are getting away from him. So like that was a really great story for me to write. And that's the kind of thing I was able to hopefully pass on to the people I taught at NYU. And I'm sure you guys are passing on to the students that you're mentoring too. Like, you know, video games are a storytelling medium, you know, like uh there's a lot of growth to be done in in, in terms of like answering that specific mandate. You know, the stories come from everywhere. They come from the designers and the developers, but also the people who play them. At its best, there's this beautiful fusion that can happen, uh, like across the, the 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 kind of like field of interactivity, where where players and designers craft something unique together, and 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 I think that's ultimately what everybody who's involved with this medium should be aiming at. You know, like uh, how how can we create something, this new, unique, super powerful alloy, you know, two elements fused together um, that, that, that shines really bright and is inspiring. Let's talk about another great storytelling medium. And that's how uh, you got involved with the Rise of the Black Panther comic book series. How did that come about? You know, it's funny. Again, I owe it all to like being a critic, right? Uh, um, Black Panther has always been my favorite comic book character, you know, and I I had a body of work <laughs> talking about him um, uh, at Kotaku 909. Uh, yes, I'm lucky enough to count Ta-Nehisi Coates as a friend. Um, when he was announced as the writer for the main Black Panther series, you know, we kind of fallen apart, um, drifted apart, like just, you know, life gets busy. And I got in touch with him. I was like, yo, he's like, I know. I'm like, yo, he's like, I know. Uh, so we started talking a lot. You know, I couldn't review his work because we're friends, but like I was able to interview him. They were really deep, kind of evolved interviews. And Will Moss, his editor at Marvel, said, hey, everyone really seems to know his Black Panther stuff. Do you think he'd be interested in taking on a project for us? And, um, you know, I had to think about it because, you know, they were like uh, I had a day job that um, conflicted with the, taking that on. But thankfully, my editors at the time were like, look, you just stay away from Marvel. You stay away from comic books for the most part. Um, and, and you can do this. You can write this on the side in your free time. Um, you figure out other stuff to cover. And I did movies and games and other stuff. Uh, so yeah, I was able to, to make it happen like that. And, you know, it was, it's a peak life experience for me. Like being able to add to like the rich lore of this character at a time, ta was writing the book, um, in rather excellent fashion and, you know, following the footsteps of so many people I admired who'd written this character, you know, people like Don McGregor, um, uh, uh, Dwayne McDuffie's written that character. Uh, Christopher Priest, one of my uh, most formative influences. Um, he was the first black editor at Marvel and DC. Um, had a, a defining run on the character starting in 1998. Like you know, so being able to put that love for the character and what they did, like and tie all these disparate elements together, was really really um, amazing for me. I, 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 you know, and I got to go to the movie premiere. That was just mind-blowing uh, it was it was an incredible time so uh, I, again, I want to talk about a couple of the video games that you have been working on and, and one um, that's not a video game is uh, this animated show called Genlock right um, can you talk about that and Spider-Man as well just about how these things 
it fell into place for you. And I don't mean to say that as like, oh, this suddenly happened, right? But, but how did it, in a timeline kind of way, happen? You know, again, it's sensitive material because I, I I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not say. But like, I can say, you know, with with the Miles Morales game, you know, people at Insomniac reached out to me. I guess from their standpoint, I'm somebody who's written about video games, has written comics, has written about representation and diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with a character like Miles Morales, those things are all important. So they thought I'd be a, a good fit. Um, you know, and all I can really say is I'm part of a team that's helping make this game. I don't bear sole responsibility for any one element of it. But, you know, like I've, I've been part of the development process and, and uh, it's been really eye opening and exciting. Um, and I think the game is going to be really, really special. Like, I'm not just saying that because I'm working on it. Like, I think it's there are some things in there that I think are really going to move people um, as regards to Genlock. It was, again, another weird intersection thing where Rooster Teeth uh, is a production company in Austin. You know, they started off making Red vs. Blue, those old uh, videos where they made them in Halo, Machinima videos where they made them in Halo. Uh, somebody at the studio uh, asked me, you know, to write about Jen Locke um, as a journalist. And I did that. And then people were really excited. They're a really popular studio with a super dedicated fan base. And then they kind of went away. Uh, and the next time I heard from them, they, they, they pinged me and said they want to meet. I figured it was, oh, it's just going to be time for another article. Uh, but no, they actually wanted to help me consult on the, on the show. So I, I, I did consult on the first season um, and got a writing credit for the, for the finale, which I helped write. Uh, and then, you know, as they got approved for season two, um, they reached out to me and asked me to be part of the writing staff for, for the second season. So I'm a full staff writer on the second season. Uh, I guess that's not a secret, or maybe it is, I don't know, but it's been an extremely fun process. I care about this show and these characters so much, and it's been so fun to kind of think about the existential conundrums that a technology, like the one in this science fiction universe where you can kind of digitize your brain and put it inside of a giant robot, what does that mean for you? How do you think about yourself as a person? What does it mean for, for how wars get fought? So those are things we explore a lot in season two. Um, and that's probably all I can say there. So, Evan, I have to ask this question. Uh, I want to I get personal a little bit. So sure. as, as you look across the range of all of these projects, whether it's Spider-Man or, or Black Panther, now Genlock, what is it that you personally bring to these stories? What is it that you, your heritage... You know, all the things that make you, you, what is it that you bring to these stories? Um, wow. Uh, that's a deep one. But uh, again, Reggie, we share this heritage and we're both Haitian. Part of what comes with being Haitian is, is an intense sense of pride. You know, our, our, our motherland was the first free black republic to throw off the yoke of colonialism. That coupled with being part of a larger um, black diaspora you know, has always made me think about the ways that we are misrepresented, misunderstood, disenfranchised, you know, for centuries now. And the fact that I, I get to do what I do um, is not something I take lightly. You know, I want to put that pride in the work I do. I want to put that sense of humanity, you know, like I always say the work that I'm trying to do in, in any field, in any 
any kind of discipline is just create a, a wider possibility space for what it means to understand uh, black people as, as human beings. I still feel like there's the stereotypes and the systemic racism that exist are, are so deeply ingrained in, in people's minds and society structures uh, that, that to me, there's no other choice but to kind of work against it however I can, you know? And that means us, that means showing black characters being uh, vulnerable, heroic, understanding, empathetic, uh, not perfect, you know, not like um, um, paragons, you know, but like having real foibles and flaws and struggling against them in, in, in the face of historical oppressions that like are, are, are incredibly powerful. So that's what I try to bring, you know, like, you know, I try to, t- I try to take experiences that I've lived through myself and, and, and use them as fodder for, 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 for story and plot and characterization, but also like being receptive to experiences that are not like my own and hopefully being able to honor those too, you know, being open to what it's like for other marginalized people from other walks of life to experience this kind of thing um, and, 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 and bring that into a story space too. So, you know, that's, that's what I try to bring, you know, I hope it comes through. Um, I'm all, you know, I'm always working in a partnership with other people to kind of achieve these goals. So far, I've been really lucky to have really great partners on all this stuff. Yeah, but Black Panther was a lot of you, and certainly in the writing. And I, I remember I stay, I, I, I stood outside for an hour and a half, man, to get inside for your autograph. So it's uh, uh, it, it, you could have just you could have <laughs> just mailed it to me, Harold. But yeah, <laughs> no, I wanted the experience, man. I wanted the experience. Thank you. I appreciate you showing up. But it, I think the last question, Evan. Reggie would be if if you were able to talk to the younger version of yourself, the younger writer. What advice would you give to that person? What would and and, and what would you say also to kids and upcoming writers who want to be like you? So so first, you know, what advice would you give to yourself, and then what advice would you give to others? It'd probably be the same advice. <clears throat> Excuse me, which is don't give up on yourself. Um, keep believing in yourself. Um, no matter what the messages you might be getting from society as a whole about your worth, no matter what doubts you may be feeling day to day, like don't give up on yourself. There's something inside of you that is unique to you that um, can be the start of a story, start of a journey that 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 only you can articulate. You know, my own, even my own moments of doubt when I struggle to like put something down on the page or on the screen, I, 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 I fall back and, and tell myself, you know, only you can do this. The, the version of the thing that you're doing right now, only you can do it. You know, somebody else is going to do something different and that's great. But like only you can tell the story that you're trying to tell here. So that's the same thing I tell anybody, you know, like there's something unique. There's a unique idea or energy inside of yourself that you can, that you can nurture and put onto the world and, and, that can help somebody um, or it can just be a, a true, honest expression of, of what you think is important and what you think is of value. And don't give up on that. 
it may be a hard thing to find. Um, and I say that from experience, but like, don't give up on, on the process of finding it and nurturing it and, 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 you know, in a way becoming a truer, a truer version of you. That's a powerful thought, Evan. Thank you for that. That's great. Uh, you know, just, just trying to be, just trying to be real. You know, Evan, you know, you and I have known each other. We've got a lot of connections, uh, really appreciate the time you've spent with us, the, the perspective you've shared. Uh, can't wait to see what you do with Spider-Man. It's going to be, uh, it, I'm sure it's going to be phenomenal, but uh, just a real pleasure spending time with you. I thank you both guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's good seeing you both. It's been a while. Um, and, you know, like I just, I just, the stuff that I'm working on, you know, in partnership with, with whether it's Insomniac or Rooster Teeth or everybody else, I just hope everybody enjoys it. I think, you know, we're making some special things and it's going to be really cool. Cool. Thank you. It was great to connect with Evan again. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met and his career is on the rise. He really deserves it. As you heard, Evan's a fan of our nonprofit mentoring activities, and we hope you can help out a little at nygamecritics.com slash Reggie. Also fans are the people at Mythical Games. This week, we have news on Blanco's, Mythical's upcoming game that allows you to make money while playing. You can register your account at blancos.com for the chance to be part of the upcoming beta. Blanco's block party allows you to build the world you want, and the game gives you complete ownership of what you create. Also, you can collect and play with limited edition Blanco's digital vinyl toys. They're really cool and designed by top artists, including John Paul Kaiser and James Groman. Just as Mythical Games made a sponsoring donation to the podcast, we hope you yourself can donate at nygamecritics.com slash Reggie. Every $10 or more really helps us mentor underserved students. Around the time the pandemic first hit New York City, the Critics Circle put together a fascinating virtual meeting. It included our critics and our burgeoning teen writers and a new company called GenVid. The presentation featured a compelling streaming technology demonstrated by four game developers. GameVid CEO Jacob Navoke is here to tell us all about it. Jacob, why don't we start with just a little bit of information about your background? Sure. Um, so I've been running GenVid for four years. Before that, uh, I lived in Japan. I spent about a third of my life there. Uh, I worked for Square Enix Holdings, which is the parent company of the Square Enix Group. I was the only American there, which was a fascinating experience. And I led worldwide business development and strategy uh, for Yoichi Wada, their longtime CEO. Um, and then also for the current CEO, Yosuke Matsuda, since uh, I've known for an equally long amount of time. Um, this company, Genvid, came out of my work at Square Enix. Uh, I led their cloud gaming business. Uh, so we were researching how to create new types of games and content. 2009, 2010, we stood up R&D. Uh, that I was in charge of. Uh, eventually, we created a subsidiary called Shinra Technologies. I'm still wearing the logo, named after the evil corporation from Final Fantasy VII. Um, so I'm the only person in the world who can say with complete truth that I was the senior vice president of Shinra, because I was. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, we were working on how do you create new types of game experiences through cloud. Uh, we were building prototypes. We were actually developing content. Um, and then we, we realized that there were unique challenges around cloud gaming 
but that those same opportunities around content could come through broadcast. And I'm happy to explain what that means in a moment, but uh, that's when I decided to depart Square Enix and start Genvid and try something completely different. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about this technology, live streaming's present, and live streaming's future as well. Absolutely. So I think that that connects to kind of what we were doing before and, and where we think this is going. Um, when we started working on uh, cloud tech, and, and keep in mind, my team is the same team um, that was with me at Square Enix, my CTO and my COO. Some of us have been working together for nine plus years. We were trying to explore at the time, what could you do with games that were being generated on servers that couldn't be done on a console? In other words, you've got all of this access to server power on the cloud. What if you scaled games in a unique way? And one of the examples that we always referred to was, if you look at old school Mario Kart with its split screen, the processing was all happening on your local machine. What if we had a set of servers that acted like a mega console and we just split rendering windows into that server and we could stream those out? Could we create the world's biggest single type of Mario Kart? Could you avoid having to um, recreate the physics explosions and the other uh, elements that normally would be all processed on everybody's local device over and over and over? Could we create something entirely different than what came before? Uh, and so we were exploring this from the perspective of, okay, everybody's going to play a game on cloud. Uh, and of course, we were developing the content, developing the tech. Uh, but by the time 2016 hit, we found a couple of things. One, the cost of rendering was way more expensive than we anticipated when we started. Second, the cost of real-time bandwidth was actually multiple times more expensive than the cost of rendering. And third, latency was still a problem. You know, when we began, I guess we were biased because we were doing it out of Japan. Um, we had fiber connections everywhere. We come to the United States and all those promised fiber rollouts just didn't happen. Uh, so I remember being in offices with the telecom companies in 2015 and saying to them, hey, when are we going to start to see further fiber to the home happening? And they're like, well, 5G is coming, so we're not sure if we want to continue to invest into that. Well, 5G has been supposed to be coming for quite a while. In any case, the end result of that was that that vision for cloud gaming that we had seemed like it would take longer. But one thing did occur that we didn't expect, and this was in 2014. That was Twitch Plays Pokemon. See, when we began, uh, Twitch and YouTube weren't a thing. We were starting to do cloud analysis before Justin TV had even become Twitch. Uh, and then we saw the growth of these live streaming and, and broadcasting companies for video games. And then in 2014, we watched a million people play Pokemon together. This was a cloud game. This was a new experience. Nobody had ever done anything like that before. Here were a million people playing a game together. I remember sitting with Wadasan and some of the others at Square Enix and just being shocked by this. And so, you know, in the ensuing couple of years, I, I started to think more to myself, well, what if this is a new type of game experience unlike anything we've seen before? Massive interactive live events all done in, in game engines that people play concurrently. And if we do think that that's coming, what kind of tools do game developers need? What kind of uh, you know, software and uh, engagement layers are required to help game developers unlock the potential of this? And so that's where GenVid came from. The, the name is actually Latin, Gen, Birth, Vid, View, Birth of a New Format of Viewing. 
We've been, for the last few years, developing tools for game developers to create new types of game experiences. That's very cool. So the the other aspect, from what I understand in, in the technology, is the potential that it unlock, uh, unlocks, excuse me, from a streaming perspective, right? So essentially the concept of interactive streams for viewers. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So one of the examples that I showed uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was demonstrating to Harold and the rest of the group is uh, a prototype that was being built on top of Janvid called Project Eleusis. Here are a series of AI on an island. There's 12 of them. There are no players. These AI are going about a storyline. Think about it like an interactive version of the TV show Lost. And you, the viewers, can affect them. You can send them things to help. You can send them things to fight with each other. You could affect and change the weather. You can swap the cameras around, see what they're doing, and uncover certain mysteries and secrets. What would television be like if it was interactive? What would movies be like if we could actually collaborate and change? Up until now, we've primarily been looking at that from the perspective of choose your own adventure, right? That's Netflix Bandersnatch, but that's your adventure. What I'm interested in is what happens when you've got, let's say, a version of The Sims where everybody is the god instead of just you. What will occur here? What kind of new types of formats and experience emerge? And so one of the things that's really interesting is we've seen developers experiment with this by putting players versus viewers into the format. Similar to the Hunger Games, you may be playing, running around, people could be sending you items, or they could be sending waves of enemies at you. And so the viewers are not just watching, they're actually participants in this experience and where they want to participate, how they want to participate, really is up to the game developer to decide and the viewership to unlock. So, Jacob, when you did that demo for the New York video game Critics Circle, you had a number of developers with you. And so can you give us some of the examples of these games and what you can do in them? Absolutely. So uh, let's take one of my uh, favorite titles that's being built on the title, which is a uh, built on the software, which is a title called Retroit by Black Block Games in Finland. Uh, their title is a mobile MMO. Think of it like Grand Theft Auto if it was just the car missions. It's being built in the Godot engine, which is an open source engine, uh, and it's all in one single shared world. Now the players are playing, they're driving around, they're smashing things, they're you know completing their missions, but the viewers control the CCTV cameras around the city. We're watching different corners. We're able to send in cash trucks for people to destroy. We're able to send in exploding pinatas. We're able to send in soccer balls and see things get destroyed. We can see and write the breaking news, point out what's most interesting in the city. And so because of the fact that the game itself is one big shared world, you start to unlock this very unique capability that up until now hasn't been possible. Another developer that's doing something really interesting is Dennis Diak, who of course, is the legendary creator of Legacy of Cain and Eternal Darkness and Two Humans. I mean, I played his games growing up. Uh, and he's working on a, a game um, from his studio, Apocalypse Studios, called Denhouse Sonata. Uh, and in this game, the players are going through a roguelike, and the viewers are the dungeon masters. They're deciding what gates to open, what fire traps to set, how to level the enemies up and down. If you think up until now, when you've been pray- playing these roguelikes, you've been primarily going against 
you know, other singular players or AI. Well, the collective viewership of Twitch or YouTube or Facebook is going to be pretty much the smartest AI you can come against. And so the type of gameplay experiences that will uh, result from this are super interesting. We have a, a couple of games coming out of Japan, several of which for the Switch, which I'm also excited by. One of them is by a, a famous Japanese indie called Jichijo Takaki, uh, who has created a game called Demolition Robots KK. It's been in Famitsu and a couple of other places. Uh, and in this game, there are four robots and they're destroying the city. You see, they've been hired by city developers to go and squash the buildings so people could put up a strip mall and such. Uh, but the residents of the city are the viewers. And every viewer is assigned a house and they're trying to protect themselves from being destroyed by these giant robots. So you see this fascinating asymmetrical gameplay result. Uh, another game is Space Sweeper. We debuted this at Tokyo Game Show last year with Entity Dokomo. It's by another Japanese indie creator called Kengo Nakajima who worked on the Dragon Quest series and, and others uh, and who I've known for many years. Uh, and in this game, which is a, a genre in Japanese that they call Tamajigoku or Bullet Hell, uh, lots of things are flying at the players and the viewers uh, watch it come from a completely different perspective. See, they see the ghost world. Every enemy that gets killed leaves a ghost, an angry spirit. It's upset for having been murdered. And so the viewers can collect those spirits and use the points that they collect to send things back into the world. They can build like Minecraft, they can send in waves of enemies, or they can try to help. One of the things that we did with uh, NTT and Twitch last year at Tokyo Game Show, we put a crack team together, the QA testers of the game, uh, and we gave them one hour to complete what normally takes the, uh, three hours, the first milestone of the game, uh, with the help of the viewership, all sending in items to assist the players, and we had an uh, announcer going back and forth to them, what do you need? Do you need apples or diamonds or this or that and the other thing? Uh, and they managed to complete the game in about 70 minutes with the, with the viewership's help. So uh, all of this done by you know, small creators, including some large publishers, too, that are, that are working on content. But um, you, it's amazing to see the innovative ideas that are, that are coming out of these developers' minds. You know, as you describe these examples, it, it really makes my head explode in terms of what the potential could be and, and what a creator could do. But let's shift gears and talk a bit about the business, right? So what's the business model? How does this work um, in terms of you know, a monetization uh, potential, whether it's for the game creator or really uh, also for your company? This is a, a great question and super important. I'm going to answer it from the perspective of, of two connected and critical topics. The first one is what did we think that the company's business model should be? And the second one is, how do we think that developers should be monetizing it? And both of those are connected to each other, but equally important. See, when we started raising money for this about four years ago, many of the investors that we spoke to were like, this tech is so great and your vision is so good. Why don't you just go and compete with Twitch? And I thought, wow, that's pretty stupid. But, you know, people tell you stupid things all the time when you're trying to raise money. Um, Look, if I, I, I answered the, the following way. If I went to Matsuda-san, Square Enix's CEO, and, and, and my good friend, and I said to him, hey, why don't you make a game on my content, and it'll run on my platform? It'll be like, how many viewers do you have? And I'll say zero, and he'll say, no, thank you. <laughs> At the end of the day, um, you know, Amazon owns Twitch. Facebook has its own live streaming platform. Microsoft has Mixer. And, of course, Google has YouTube. 
right? The platforms are there. The viewership is already out there. So we decided not to do a B2C play and create a platform for consumers, but rather to go B2B and offer technologies for game developers to write once and deploy anywhere, deploy to any streaming platform that they prefer without having to be beholden to a specific set of SDKs or APIs of that platform. In that way, it's similar to Unity. So we think of ourselves like a Unity for interactive streaming. In fact, we collaborate pretty closely with Unity and Unity devs. Several of the games that I mentioned were built on it. Uh, the other thing that uh, is very important is that second topic that I mentioned, which is how do we believe developers will monetize this? The primary use case of interactivity for streams that we've seen the last few years has been influencer-based. We're going to put some interactivity into our game and a streamer will stream it and more people will watch and we'll get more players. That's a marketing model. That's not really a business model. What we believe is that there is an entire category of viewership out there that can monetize your game content even if they're not players. They may pay to send an item in. They may pay to engage with it. Or in the case of Project Eleusis, that one on the island that I mentioned, the entire game exists only as a stream. And all of its monetization opportunities, like paying to send in a drone, are basically mobile-like free-to-play experiences, but done over streaming. Up until now, particularly if you think about it from the perspective of console games, you've primarily had, I'm going to pay 60 bucks and buy it, or I'm going to watch it for free. But there is an entire willingness to pay spectrum of people who we think will out, are out there that want to engage, want to participate, and are willing to spend money on it, but don't necessarily want to be skilled at the product, right? Because gameplay is about skill. How can I get better? What we think is interesting is an audience that wants to engage and be entertained, affect, but not have to worry about, am I getting better at this game? Just be entertained by it. And so that connects to the business model that we decided on. Similar to Unreal Engine, we're free to download and develop. And if a game developer decides to monetize it, we'll take a royalty, but not before that. Thanks again, and, 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 and good luck working. Thanks so much. Take care, and great speaking with you both. Great. Thank you. Reggie, Cherie Smith has been my go-to person to help with mentoring ever since we began giving back to the community at the New York Video Game Critics Circle. Cherie's been a member of the Circle's core group for years as well, and this year she became the editor-in-chief of Laptop Magazine. She knows new tech like the palm of her hand, and she has a heart of gold. So uh, here's our segment with Cherie Smith. Oh, Harold, you flatter me. You flatter me too much. <laughs> Sheree, it's great to have you on the podcast. So uh, I'm actually going to start on the gaming side. We're we're gonna we're gonna get your opinion in the gaming landscape. So obviously, there are two new consoles that are launching uh, later this year. They haven't announced the date, so I won't even say that they're coming holiday, but they're coming later this year. So between the two, which one are you looking forward to the most? Both. I do not discriminate. I am a, I am very gaming agnostic, as I like to call it. So my household is open to Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, PC, mobile, you name it, I game on it. So everything is welcome. That's great. Are there particular games or franchises you love most? Um, right now, I, I just finished up Final Fantasy VII Remake. It is gorgeous. It is, it 
exceeded my expectations so greatly that, that like I know that I'm going to invest in every single episode that they do of this game. It went above and beyond the Call of Duty. Um, as far as upcoming games, I'm really looking forward to Horizon Forbidden West. I was, I really loved um, Horizon Zero Dawn, so I expect great things from Gorilla. Uh, as far as Xbox, I I liked some of the indie games. They had a lot of good indie games that that I'm expecting to do really well and be those sleeper hits. Uh, I appreciate that Xbox has. Uh, gone back to the lab, realized that they need to have more exclusives and made major investments in buying publishing houses. Like, so I'm expecting great things from the, from them on that exclusive front. They haven't said anything yet, but I am excited. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and if there's anyone who can pull that off, it's Phil, given his development background. So it's I think it's going to be really interesting when they start to uh, to unveil some of those first party games. Well, we'll continue with games, uh, Sheree and Reggie. Um, both of you, when when do you think Nintendo will come out with a successor to the Switch? And also to both of you, what is your all-time favorite Nintendo game? Oh, like just period? Period. Oh, no. Oh, man. I guess... You know what? It's 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 a really obscure game, but it was the first game that I got with my Nintendo that wasn't Mario Solomon's Key. Mm. Like I played that game so much. Like I I hear it. I hear the soundtrack in my mind right now. Like I like when it's running out of time. That like I like I I played that game so much. Um, before I got to Zelda and the likes of Kid Icarus and things of that nature. So that game really has a place in my heart. You know, for me, I, I'm a Zelda fan. Uh, the the, the f- game I first fell in love with was uh, uh, Link to the Past. But with Breath of the Wild, I have invested hundreds of hours into Breath of the Wild. And uh, so for me, you know, th- those are my two favorite games. And I, I can't wait for the, uh, the-, the next uh, Breath of the Wild uh, and where uh, Mr. Ayunuma and that team takes that, uh, that franchise. I, th- I think that's going to be wonderful. So what about the next Switch? When- when's it coming, Reggie? When's it coming, Sheree? Well, so I'll, I'll jump in first, right? And, and I'll-, I'll play the party line. The- the the management right, Mr. Furukawa uh, just did a, a management review, and they communicated that in their view the switch is only about halfway through its life cycle, so it has another three or four years to go. So I I think that. In typical Nintendo fashion, they'll consider the range of technologies. They'll figure out what's going to be best from a gameplay perspective and what their developers can do the most with in terms of creating magical content. Uh, but certainly, as, uh, as their leadership has said, uh, a new Switch is not coming for quite some time. Cherie? Huh. Like, I... I tend to agree with Reggie, but I, in my heart of hearts, I am hoping for a surprise holiday launch. Just, just when everyone's like saved all their pennies for Xbox and PlayStation Five, here comes Nintendo. Like, it, like here comes a here comes another challenger. It's like, 
like I, I like I would love it to be a free for all this um holiday season but I think like if if that's my dream like I like I'm doing this like like I do COVID there's a dream of when when we get out uh more realistic one and then a doomsday so the dream is holiday more realistic uh more realistic next year holiday doomsday two years out (laughs) you know you're um you know times are changing you've got some new responsibilities what does it mean for you as you work as the editor-in-chief of laptop magazine you know how does that role play out for you personally um, it, it personally, it, it, like, it's an exciting time. Like, it's something that I didn't expect. It's something that when I started at Laptop 10, um, 10, 11 years ago, I looked at Mark Spoonhauer and Abram Pilch and Anna Atkinson, uh, and I saw their jobs. I'm like, I never want this job. None of them. None, like, never in my life. And now, fast forward, I have the job. And it's one of the most rewarding things I've done to date in my life. Um, it's a little bittersweet because uh, as I'm finding out, and it's pretty much been confirmed that I'm the first uh, black woman editor-in-chief of a major tech publication. So, like, that's amazing. Like, it's something my mother can brag about. But it's also, like, it's 2020. Like, why why am I the first? So, I guess with that, with that comes great responsibility and the responsibility for me is the is that I might be the first but I definitely don't want to be the best my job is to make the next and the next and the next that's so great and you know the, the concept of laying out a path for others and enabling others to uh, to take that to a whole new level I think that's fantastic Cherie you know, we have worked together on mentoring giving scholarships to the underserved and choosing our paid interns for years now. What are your memories of giving back through the New York Video Game Critics Circle? There, there's so many, but I, I guess just in the day-to-day of it, like it's the best part of my month. Like when I know that we're going up to Dream Yard and we're going to see these fresh faces and we're going to talk about something that helped shape where I am today. Like thankfully my mother didn't say, well, the video games, what are the, what are the, she doubled down and she got whatever, as long as your grades were good, you can get whatever you wanted. So my wants were books and video games. She never denied me either. And like to be able to see that next generation and talk games with them and the games that they choose to talk about, it's like, how do you even know about this? Like you weren't even, you weren't even a thought in anyone's mind when this game came out. Where did you find it? How did you get your hands on it? And to just hear those fresh perspectives, it's just, it's just so enlightening. It just make it, it just makes me feel like I'm a kid again. And I love that. I got, uh, along those lines, I got an earful, I don't know if that's the right word to use, from Isaac Espinoza uh, the other day about about the history of Mario 2D, right? And um, it was... Uh, it was really, really interesting because he went very deep into, you know, what things look like and why they look like and why they made these choices. So he's, you know, our, our students, both at the Dream Yard and on the Lower East Side and, and now uh, the Homeless Shelter, they, they really 
do uh, seem to dig down deep once they get very interested in something. Absolutely. It's it's always astounding to see the perspectives and how they relate these games to their lives or how they have special significance to them. Um, and the work that comes out of that is just, it just makes for some really gripping journalism. You know, Sharia, you're invaluable to the New York Game Awards. And I saw you in action <laughs> in terms of everything uh, that you did to help make that such a success. Tell us from your perspective, what's that night like? Uh, what are the things that you get involved in and what are some of your best memories? Um, it's a night of controlled chaos, which I, I work best in anarchy. Like ask anybody that I work with when, when everything is just seeming, seemingly imploding, I am at my best. So that is like, um, I basically am in, I'm one of the showrunners, so I make sure that the lineup is there. I make sure that everyone is in their places, they're seated. Uh, I make sh I help make sure that the stage guys and the wonderful video people and the moderators there, they've got everything that they need. Uh, and just and when the show starts, to make sure that people know, okay, such and such is given their award. Be ready. Have your award. Have whatever you're going to say ready. And like if the person like just directing traffic, making sure that guests get into their seats and just making sure that it all looks effortless and seamless. That's great. And you you do a wonderful job. You you certainly made sure I was where <laughs> I needed to be at the right time. So that was much appreciated. And Cherie will be depending on you again. And our, our core group of folk, uh, John, George, and Victor, to help with our landmark 10th annual New York Game Awards on the day after Martin Luther King's birthday, 2021. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time and coming on the podcast. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Um, anytime, any place, as long as it's a critic Circle party, I'm going to be there. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Th thanks so much, Cherie. Reggie, we have a question for you today. It's from Rudy Blanco, an energetic educator we work with in the Bronx and someone you've met during mentoring. Rudy asks, streaming has really taken off. There are many different skills that are needed in order to produce digital content like this. Is it worth it for schools and nonprofits to focus on teaching younger kids these foundational skills? And if it is, in what areas of the industry can young people find an entry with a job like this? You know, Rudy, thanks so much for the question. You know, I always enjoy spending time with you when we visit the Dream Yard and, and spend time with the young people we mentor. You know, expert streamers have so many different skills. First, they're great communicators. They speak passionately to their audience. And we saw this firsthand in our interview with Dr. Lupo in episode four. Second, streamers today have to have great technical skills, setting up their space, getting their equipment, editing the video, mixing in the audio. There's a technical mastery involved in streaming today. Lastly, their range of business skills that the best streamers have. They create business partnerships, they market themselves and their content. 
These are foundational skills for growing any business. I believe that teaching our young people these skills in an educational setting absolutely pays dividends down the road because these skills can be applied across a range of industries. You could become a producer in the media industry. You could work in post-production for movies and commercials. And obviously, you could work in the game industry itself. Just in executing this podcast, I've had to learn so many new skills. I've seen it for myself. Thanks again for the question. Well, that's game over for this week's show, folks. We'll see you next week for our final episode. We've had a great time during these past weeks entertaining you and fundraising for underserved students in New York City. Next week, our guest will be Naughty Dog's Vice President and Game Director, Neil Druckmann. Neil will talk about the making of The Last of Us Part Two, which is already a huge bestseller. Reggie, I recently spoke with Neil for a story I wrote for Vulture about an amazing scene in The Last of Us Part Two that made me tear up. Uh, It's called the kiss scene and, and you can find it online, but I can't wait to speak with Neil once again. Talking Games with Reggie and Harold was produced and edited this week by Ahmad Khan. It's written by me. Annie Nguyen is our project manager. John Azalona is our designer. Whitney Mears helps with social media. Our music was written by Emmy and Grammy winner Anton Sanko. As we leave, we invite you to listen closely to or read the lyrics of Marvin Gaye's classic, What's Going On? Be safe, be sound, and we'll see you next week.